I know to look at me, you wouldn't guess that I've, I've run a number of marathons, but it's true, I have. Back in another lifetime, years ago, I remember running the Pittsburgh Marathon. If you've ever run a marathon, it's like a party. There, there's, there's bands, there's cheerleaders, people out on their front yards, little kids. They're, they're putting their hands out, and I would pretend that every time I passed the kid, I would get energy as I went by them, you know. And you run, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I was never a speedster. My goal was to be halfway when the Kenyans finished, right? And, and, uh, and so you would run with different people and you would talk. I remember running next to this one guy about mile 10. I look over and, he, and he's got tears in his eyes. And we run some more and tears are going down his face. I said, hey, something wrong? He said, no. And people are out in their yards. They're clapping. Yeah, hey, you're looking good. There's, there's 10,000 people ahead of you, but you're looking good, you know. And I look over and he's crying. I finally said, listen, what's wrong? He turned to me and he said, no one's ever applauded for me before. <laughs> yeah. You know, those people eventually go back in their houses. And there's just a few of us still left on the course. <laughs> I remember being about mile 18 and nobody was in the front yards anymore. We were going up this hill, this friend of mine and I, and we were running this together. And this kid zooms by us in a bike. He gets to the top of the hill and he stops and he waits for us to catch up. He looks at Bobby and he looks at me. He looks at Bobby and he says, good luck. <laughs> he said, you're going to need it. <laughs> A year later, I was running the Chicago Marathon with 31,000 people, and it was magnificent. I trained well, and I thought I was going to do good. I had a fanny pack that had a bottle of Advil in, and I would take these Advil preemptively, which is not a good deal. I'm not supposed to do that. It could hurt you, but, you know, I would take them before the pain come because I knew the pain was coming. And, and before long, I was known as the Advil guy. People would run up, hey, you got some Advil? Yeah, here. I felt like a pusher. <laughs> So I'm running, and, and then I, I blew out a quad. I was on target to set my personal record, but I blew out a quad, so I was limping, you know. We were about mile 18, and I look over, and this guy's next to me, and he's struggling, too, and we're talking. I finally, I said, hey, you want some Advil? He said, no. He said, I've got two Percocet I'm saving for mile 20. <laughs> I said, dude, you're not even going to remember you were in a marathon. Now, the reason I, I open with a marathon story is because life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, and you can do well at one stage of life and yet pull up lame later on. We're going to look at a, a fascinating character today named Samuel and, and see what he has to show us about Life being a marathon. Now, the first thing you need to know about Samuel is that he was a miracle baby. His mother was barren. She begged the Lord. Long story, don't have time for it, but the Lord gave her a son. And she promised that if, he, if she received the son after he was weaned, she would take him to the Lord and let him live with the high priest. And so she did. His name was Samuel. And, and Samuel... Uh, well, Samuel's calling was unmistakable. Uh, 
One night, as a little boy, he's lying down and he hears a voice, Samuel. He gets up and he totters into the, the priest's room, who's very old and nearly blind. He said, here I am. And the priest said, I, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Again, Samuel, he totters over to the priest's room. Priest said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Okay. Samuel, he, for a third time, he goes to the priest's room. And the priest said, I didn't call you. But he thought, you know, this might be the Lord. So if you hear the voice again, just say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So here's what scripture says happened. And the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel, Samuel replied, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Now, it's interesting that he uses uh, his name twice, Samuel, Samuel, because this only happens seven times in scripture. Moses, Moses, Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob. In the New Testament, Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul. Um, when, when God uses your voice, when God uses your name twice, it, it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of calling. It says he wants to raise you to a new level. He called Samuel and he wanted Samuel to know. And so Samuel became the mouthpiece of God that day. Because the Lord spoke something to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel repeated it and became the mouthpiece of God. Here's what God said to Samuel. He said, then the Lord said, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. I don't have time to get into all the things that Eli's sons were doing, but it was bad. They, they were taking the choice cuts of meat that were supposed to go to the Lord, and they kept them for themselves. They were sleeping with the women who brought sacrifices, and Eli wasn't correcting them. But to Eli's credit, he says, well, if that's what the Lord said, then I'm good with it. And at this point, Samuel becomes God's mouthpiece says, as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him. And everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was, a, was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. Samuel was the last judge of Israel. He was highly esteemed. He was God's man. And the Lord's authority rested on him. And he brought the nation of Israel to revival and to uh, a time of relative peace. Look what it says in 1 Samuel 7. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Asherah. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Asherah and worshipped only the God 
only the Lord. God bless Samuel. God bless the nation of Israel. And it says, and throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. It's a good story. He's done well. But, 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 just like Tim taught us last week in the life of Samson, we can learn from the mistakes as much as we can learn from the things done well. Because there's one glaring area that Samuel did not attend to. Look what it says. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father. For they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. The very thing that elevated Samuel to a place of leadership happened to his family. My guess is if he had a do-over, he would have said, oh God, let me do this one more time. Let me do it right. It says in 1 Samuel 8, finally the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the, mat the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Oh, this broke Samuel's heart because he knew God didn't want a king. This isn't what God would want. And he was crestfallen. He went to the Lord. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. And the Lord said, do everything they say to you. For they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask. But solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. He tried to tell them, listen, if you have a king, he's going to conscript your sons into military service. He's going he's gonna to tax you heavily. They said, I don't care. We want a king. The very thing that brought Samuel to prominence now happened to him. And he had no sons to carry on the godly tradition. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told about a farmer who, who had great crops one year and he said, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'll tear down my old ones. I'll build bigger barns. I'll store all this crop and I will say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, you fool, this very night your life will be required of you. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And lose his own son. Now, if you know the Bible, that's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? But I would quickly ask, which of us as fathers would not give our very souls for that 
of our children. We have a lot of young parents here. You got little ones in the home. I remember those days. <laughs> I remember well. And when you're there, you think it's going to last forever, right? But it doesn't. It goes quickly. Look at some stats I put together here. So if you take the age of a child at two, at two years of age, that child has 14, year, uh, 14, year, 14 hours available to you. They're, they're not going anywhere else, right? I mean, they sleep, they eat, but they don't got friends you're going to call them. They're not going to hop on a video deal. They've got 14 hours available to you. Now, you won't spend all that with them, but that's what they've got available to you. By the time they are eight, they're in school, they might have four hours that are available to you every day. By the time they're 14, if you could get an hour out of them every day, you're doing well. And by the time they're 18, honestly, if you could get a half an hour a day out of your 18-year-old, you're doing well. Now, let's look at this another way, and let's throw some percentages. This means that by the time a child is two, 33% of all of their available time to you is gone. By the time they are 10, you've used up 92% of their available time to you. You know, you might think, I've got a nine-year-old here, and so I've got half of my time left with him. And that, that's true in that you've got nine more years, but it's not true when you look at the amount of daily time they've got available. The amount of time they could give you from zero to nine is vastly different than the time they can give you from 10 to 18, These are not your kids. The kids in your house are God's kids. And he gave them to you for a very brief season. For you to put God's fingerprints on them. And it takes time. And so we use our time wisely. The next graph I've got on the screen shows you um, two major uh, weapons, if you will, uh, in raising children. I should say two tools. One is the tool of authority. The other is the tool of influence. When a child is young, one, two, three, you use authority a lot. I mean, you think about it. A one and a half year old tries to cross a busy street. You're going to use authority and bring him back. He tries it again. You're going to be more authoritative. He tries it again. You're going to be downright authoritative. You don't try to reason with him. You know, Johnny, I don't think that's a good idea. No. You use your authority. What you are doing when the children are young is you are teaching them about God's authority. You can't allow a little one to defy you. You can't let it stand. If you allow a little one to habitually defy you, you are inviting them to defy God. When do you want them to hear God? When God speaks the first time or the tenth time? Well, you'll say when God speaks the first time. Then have them obey you the first time. I 
I don't mean being heavy-handed. I don't mean make a bunch of rules. Just lay down a few basic guidelines. But, but make them stick. You can't let them defy you. As the graph goes on, you'll see, you know, in between 8 and 12, it's kind of the messy middle where authority is giving way to influence. You use authority heavy when they're young so that when they become teenagers, you're not the authority figure. You're not the guy that says, this is my house, and as long as they live in my house, they're going to follow my rules. Doesn't go well. You're using, you're using influence. I remember years ago, I went to a barber shop. Years ago, I said that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I sit down, and just as I sat down, there was a kid hopping up in the barber chair. And he was about a 13, 14-year-old kid, and he had longer hair over his ears, off the collar. And the barber said, how do you want to cut? He said, well, just bring it a little bit above the ears and a little bit off the collar. His father's sitting there. His father lowers uh, 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 a newspaper, and he says, give him a butch. Uh, the barber laughs and, and starts cutting, and the father lowers his paper. He says, I mean it. Give him a butch. The boy says, no, Dad, no, no, I can't go to school. To give him a butch. I watched. I watched for the next 15 minutes as this barber took his razor and just skinned it over his head, gave him a little bit on top and nothing on the sides. He looked like he was a, a marine recruit. I looked at his eyes and they were, they were tiny little slits, tears brimming in them. I looked at his fist and I thought to myself, I looked at the father still behind the paper. I thought to myself, Dad, you do many battles like this, you're definitely going to lose the war. You know, parents that use authority to the moment the kids get out of the school, you're going to do what I say when I say it. When they leave and they're gone, they're 18, 19, 20, they're out of the house. They go wild because they've never had to learn how to self-regulate. So we influence them. There was a son who was a high school quarterback, and he was good. It was his senior year, and he was rushing and passing well. Looked like he might set a school record or something, but about mid-October, he started losing a step. By the end of October, his arm was, was gone. Going into November, he began to have trouble walking up the steps. And the father began to take his son to various doctors. And finally, he took him to a renowned clinic across state. And there they probed and wired him and scanned him all day. And finally, a doctor came out to the waiting room and called the father in. And the father sat down and the doctor sat behind his desk. Doctor said, I, 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 I don't know how to tell you what I have to tell you. The father, not expecting what he was about to hear, said, well, just, just tell me. We'll deal with it. He said, no. He said, uh, no. He said, uh, your son has an inoperable tumor. Goes behind both eyes. We can't operate. It, it, it would, it, we would lose him. And furthermore, we haven't found a chemo or radiation therapy that would touch this. 
My suggestion is we give them something to make them comfortable right away. The father, not comprehending this, says, well, wait a minute. What are you telling me? And the doctor said, I'm telling you, your son is dying. And now the father begins to shake. He says, well, well, how long? And the doctor says, well, I, I, I hope you could have one last Christmas together. And with that, the father loses it, as I would, as you would, right? His head found his hands. He began to weep. And the doctor, being more than uncomfortable, began to excuse himself and said, listen, I'll break the news gently to your son. And the father said, no, no, no. No, no, I'll get it together. I will tell my son. You, you don't say a word to him. Okay. They got in the truck and they made a long four-hour drive back to the farm. Had a little dinner. Father said to his son, listen, buddy. You're probably wanting to go to bed, but if you're up to it, let's, let's go for a walk after breakfast. Okay, Dad. Son went to sleep. The father didn't sleep at all. Morning came. They had some oatmeal. Put on their jeans and boots and jackets. It's now late November. It's chilly. Leaves are down. Frost is on the ground. They walk out in a field behind their house, hands in their pockets, just kicking leaves. They go into a small wooded area. Finally, the son stops and turns to his dad. He said, Dad, tell me, what, what did the doctor say? The father put his son, his hands on his son's shoulders. He said, listen, he said, I don't know how to tell you. He said, well, just tell me, Dad. He said, Okay. He said, the doctor said, you have an inoperable tumor goes behind both eyes. And that if they operate, they would lose you and that chemotherapy or radiation make no difference. He, he said, we should give you some meds now to make you comfortable. Understanding this message, the son began to shake and just began to weep. And being embarrassed of weeping in front of his father, he ran as fast as his weakened legs would take him and sat down on a fallen log. The father, respecting his son's need for privacy, backed up and just waited. When after about 30 minutes, he, he thought he heard the crinkle of leaves underfoot. And sure enough, his son was making his way towards him. And as he came, he did a double take because it, it appeared his son was smiling. But, but he couldn't be sure, sure because of the frostiness of his breath. And, and as the son got closer, sure enough, there was a... a a broad grin on his face. And, and the father rushed up to him and he put his hands on his shoulders. He said, buddy, he said, buddy, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to see you smiling. But, but I got to ask you, what could you be smiling about at a time like this? Buddy looked right back in his father's eyes and he said, he said, uh, dad, he said, don't get me wrong, I don't want to die. But I just got to thinking over there by that log. And the thought struck me. Well, the thought struck me that if Jesus is anything like you, Dad, it'll be okay. If Jesus is anything like you, Dad, 
it'll be okay. You know, we have a saying that says when it's all said and done, right? But the reality is when it's all said and done, there's usually a whole lot more said. And what our children need to see is what a life with Jesus looks like. They need to see a father, mother, a stepfather, stepmother, grandma, grandpa, good friend living for Jesus. They need to see the humility in a dad or a mom that when they make a mistake, they say to a child, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Because they're not your kids. They're his kids. And he gave them to you for a brief season. For you to put your fingerprints on these kids. God's fingerprints on these kids. When they look at you, dad, and I mentioned dad, and I'll go broader here in a minute, because the reason I mentioned dad is because it is a fact that a kid's concept of God begins with their relationship with their earthly father. That's where it begins. It doesn't have to stay there, but that's where it begins. When they look at you, dad, what do they see? Some. Someone humbly trying to live for Jesus? Or somebody that's going to get around to it someday? What do they see in you, Mom? Grandparents are more influential today than, we, than ever before. What do they see? You know, I'm talking to some of our friends in Nashville and St. Pete and Mishawaka, and maybe you're not with a spouse but you've got a good friend. What does your good friend see in you? If Jesus is anything like you, will it be okay? I invite you to lean hard into Jesus. you've not been baptized, I invite you to sign up. If you're a guy, lean hard into Jesus. We have a men's prayer breakfast on Saturday where the leader of the South Bend Cubs is going to share his testimony and challenge you nine o'clock. What do they see in you? If Jesus is anything like you, dad, Mom, grandparent, friend, will it be okay? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. If you're sitting with a spouse, I want you to take a hand. If you're sitting with your children and your spouse, would you take all of their hands? Would you hold hands as a family? Let me pray for you. To our friends at the campuses, if you don't have a spouse, but you're sitting there with a good friend, would you take a friend's hand? Father, life is fast. And there's so many things we promise ourselves that we're going to get around to. But I pray now, in this moment, we will purpose in our hearts to get around to this now.
that we will be like Jesus to these that we love so much. I pray in the name of Jesus. Look up at me for a moment. In a bit, you're going to have more time to pray just with that unit. But right now, there might be some of you who have never said yes to Jesus. And we give you that chance. You'll see on the screens this prayer. If you want to say this and mean it, I invite you to do it. Would you say it with me? Jesus, I need you. I believe you are the Savior of the world, that you gave your life to forgive my sins, and that God raised you from the grave so that I could have eternal life. Thank you for loving me. I am saying yes to you, Jesus. Come into my life. I will follow you. Amen. The band's going to sing a wonderful song. The band's going to sing a wonderful song. And as they do, I'm sure you'll be invited to stand. But if you are sitting as husband and wife or family clusters and you want to just put all your heads together and talk, maybe encourage, maybe say, hey, you know what, I... I need to say I'm sorry. Pray. You'd be welcome to do it. Let's stand together. And I encourage you to be in prayer.